and welcome to Shit That Platypus Says, a new podcast series hosted by Platypus. The commentary on the commentary on the left, including articles in the latest issue of the Platypus Review, the monthly journal of the Platypus-affiliated society. I'm one of your hosts, Pam Nogales. The Platypus-affiliated society, if you haven't heard, was established in December 2006. We organize reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on the problems and tasks inherited from the old new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. If you'd like to learn more about Platypus, or if you'd like to get involved in one of our chapters around the globe, you can visit www.platypus1917.org. Before we get started, just a couple of words about the structure of our podcast. We've divided it into three parts. The first 15 minutes will be on the commentary on the left, this week, we've taken up Paul DeMarty's review of Angela Nagel's Kill All Normies, the online culture wars from Tumblr and 4chan to the alt-right and Trump, published by Zero Books this year, 2017. This was published in the Weekly Worker, which is the organ of the CPGB based in the UK. You can find the link to this as well as all of the material we'll be discussing today in the description of our episode on the SoundCloud website. The second part of the podcast will be 15 minutes on the recent Platypus Berkeley panel, Anti-Fascism in the Age of Trump. The audio link to the recording is also included in the description. We hosted a conversation with members of the CPUSA, the DSA, Freedom Socialist Party, as well as PM Press. The last 15 minutes is dedicated to material in the Platypus Review. We focus mainly on an article by the group Crime Think titled, Not Your Grandfather's Anti-Fascism. And that's how we wrap up the podcast. Last point of clarification, at the beginning of the discussion, we referenced someone called Milo. That's just us mispronouncing Milo Yiannopoulos' name. So that's Milo, not some fictitious man by the name of Milo. <laughs> Have a listen. Uh, welcome to the first of the Platypus podcast. Shit that Platypus says. <laughs> the commentary on the left commentary. The commentary on the commentary, as well as on the material on the Platypus Review, the latest issue of the Platypus Review. Issue 100. Issue 100, but it'll be on a rolling basis, so it'll be new issues every podcast. My name is Pamela Nogales. I'm one of the founding members of the organization, and I'm just in Berlin from New York. I'm staying here for a bit. And I'm with Lori Rojas, and she's also a founding member of the organization. And the editor-in-chief of the Platypus Review. And we're with Audrey Cassenti. All the way from Berkeley, she's going to talk to us about the panel that we just did in Berkeley on anti-fascism, and we're going to talk about the review that Paul DeMarty had in The Weekly Worker on Angela Nagel's book, Kill All Normies. Kill All Normies. Some of the conversation that we had before this podcast was about this bizarre masculinity of the male white boy at the keyboard that she's got as the central character of the alt-right. I actually have no experience with these people. I can only imagine what it looks like because there are circles on the left <laughs> that are very small and have this kind of culture of blogosphere situations. I guess my only imagination of it is through, through Milo, like watching videos. Through Milo, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Like a Vice interview with, yes. But isn't that like in some ways like that at its best? I mean, it's not, it's not the blogosphere Tumblr thing, right? I mean, what do you think, Audrey? They're older. I don't know if they really understood 
uh, or if they shared the experience of people who are younger who um, before even honestly social media, like before like LiveJournal and MySpace, you know, if you just had a sort of like a national tragedy, I mean, the the height of that was probably like 9-11. Um, that I think was a formative experience for a lot of people. I was like 14 um, and feeling this sort of absurd notion of um, like we we're supposed to feel really sad about it. And especially when you're young, you just like you don't really know why. And it feels all very inauthentic. And I think that that's just kind of been maxed out now to the point where, you know, if you if you have like a different profile picture on Facebook, like a French flag or something, that's like you're really just saying you're the kind of person who listens to NPR or something like you don't really care about people who are who are dead. And so there's already implicit in all of that, this kind of insensitivity to death. Um, and so looking at the people who would, I don't know, just be insensitive after someone would like kill themselves or whatever. It's like, it seems shocking to people who, I don't know, I guess haven't yet experienced that um, pressure to inauthentically mourn something that they don't really experience on like a firsthand basis. Um, I think that's a part, I think that's kind of universal for like a, a large segment of people growing up. Like the way that national tragedies are kind of perceived, there's this like sense of there's pressure to mourn uh, that feels inauthentic. And I think that that created a kind of a reaction with a lot of young people. Uh, the Nagel yeah. book talks about the Coney uh, campaign. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And he picks it up too, uh, mm -hmm. DeMarty does. Um, oh, wait, what is this Coney thing? I don't know what this is. Coney 2012 video, it went pretty viral. It was about like the Ugandan sort of controversy. It, he he played it up as the, the creator of the video. I forget his name, but it was, I think, I, if I remember correctly, I actually am kind of rusty, but um, I think he was trying to collect Jason money. Russell. Also. Yeah, he got caught up in like a, like yeah. a scheme. Right, right. It was a scheme. And um, I think everyone felt kind of trolled by him, even though that wasn't his intention, obviously. It was to collect money. The point of the Nagel, and I think what you're talking about, Audrey, is this faux sentimentality that's connected to ideology, but that they're rebelling against, but in this pathological way that is very obscure to them and has these subcultures and... Sort of. I mean, it, this is the thing. It's not new. The way in which it's expressed now, of course, is new. But like, I do like how Nagel goes into the romantic kind of history and kind of talking about um, like even like Georges Bataille or like Nietzsche or these figures. Um, I think more contemporary ones are like Artie Ling um, and Abby Hoffman, of course. But uh, just this this idea, um, like even like greaser culture, I guess, which was sort of like a rebel rejection of like feminized conformity in like post-war America. Um, I think there's, I think there's just like, I mean, it's best summed up with like the Misfits or Dead Kennedys or something. Like if you've ever heard of like the, the lyrics of like The Last Caress by the Misfits, it's, it's as bad as everything you'd see on like 4chan. Um, but you know, people like me listened to it when we were younger because we were just like, fuck yeah, like they, they don't give a shit. Uh, I don't know, there's like this, there, it's just, it's like, a, it's not even, like if you take it at face value, of course it sounds evil or whatever you want to call it, but there are people who, who feel a kind of freedom in being able to be seen as evil for the sake of being seen as evil, not because they even believe in this stuff. Right, but that's uh, the cynicism yeah. of it, which is like at the, you know, this is a kind of deep, deep cynicism. 
it's a kind of like assault on belief. I mean, the notion of belief, right? Like right. having yeah. values in that way, because it's all fucked. And so, fuck yeah. off. But isn't that yeah. exactly how like trolls justify their activity as trolls as well? It's this deep cynicism. I mean, I don't justify. I think that's what it is. It's a kind of symptom of a deep cynicism. It's it is provoked, right? Meaning it's expressing something true. It's not coming out of nowhere for sure. It's, it's yeah, so yeah. it's deeply it's also, cynical of I mean, values, progressive values. Right, but then the issue is whether that, like, at its right. best is just a culture of um, contrarianism. Like, if there's... Yes. A, right? And, but and it's, it's a, not politically conscious. Right, And it, but it's... Right, that's the problem. And it's politically it's, pathological... But this is the question. So because he does raise the important question, which is, does it matter? Paul does it matter? Yeah. DeMarty's like, does it matter? Did it matter in November? Which is the question. Okay. That's this, actually... Did this yeah. shift the election? Right? Yeah. Was this like a political change? Is this just a sociological or a social development without like political ramifications? Is it a subculture that is like influencing like a way of thinking yeah. about politics? Or is it just like opportunistic and... You know, what is the the Trump stuff about? So, I mean, I would really say um, that I knew a group of comics in the East Bay, been doing stand-up here for a few years, and a lot of them, uh, like, characterize themselves as, like, incels, you know, using 4chan language, um, involuntary celibate, um, <laughs> can't get laid, it's sad, makes makes them sad, and uh, as, it, as it should, and uh, they... They completely, like, they had shitposting groups on Facebook. They had private groups, or they would add comics to it, and then they would do, like, 4chan-style takedowns of other comics. And most of the, most of the comics that are sort of unwittingly added to this, these groups would just react in revulsion, like most people do to 4chan culture, because they didn't get it. Um, these people were diehard Democratic voters. They, they were, they were, they some, like, sort of went for Bernie... Some of them went hardcore for Bernie, but then they just ended up, after they saw people like me being potentially sort of slightly soft on Trump, uh, just kind of anti-anti-Trumpism, um, it, you know, it really, it, it was a kind of what I saw in them. The only thing I could think of is like the 1905, like soldier revolt of sort of like having this revolutionary impulse. And then at the last minute, kind of just sort of just falling aside and falling prostrate before authority. Yeah, like it just, they, they pulled out. They couldn't do it. And um, I think it's because they're mostly afraid of what they'd kind of started in a lot of ways. So there's a real divide of people who definitely went for, for Hillary and supported the Democrats. And then some other people who just were so apolitical that for some reason it ended up lending itself very well to Trumpism because it was sort of apolitical. But I mean, that group really started with, if we really think about where it started, it was like Jon Stewart on when 9-11 happened, he cried. It used to be just funny and totally apolitical, and Jon Stewart made it political. He made it about virtue signaling. He bought into like this sort of the millennial subcultural like exclusivity of making sort of obscure references as a, instead of a, a real like funny punchline, and it, people reacted against that. They were like, "Where's the comedy? This isn't funny. It's not transgressive enough." And so that was like a boil that needed to be lacerated. And until it was, you just had this sort of subculture kind of swell up and swell in the ranks and it just kind of kept getting stronger that that's at least from my perspective that's what i saw um is no one was really was really able to even respond to like john stewart ism <laughs> and like aging 30 somethings who were sort of 
reprimanding their younger brethren on 4chan to sort of get in line and do the right thing and then people are just like it's making no. me feel really old but i'm just curious is this stuff <laughs> happening like it really is because i'm actually quite disconnected from this culture um i'm yeah. just wondering about like is this happening to people when they're in high school or when they're in college um both definitely started in high school i think yeah i mean i'm older i'm like i just i'm 30 so i'm definitely getting up there but uh Yeah, it definitely started in high school, at least for me, or maybe even earlier. Um, like, if we were to all play Dungeons and Dragons, we would be chaotic evil. Like, that was the orientation, you know? Or it's just kind of, like, delighting in, um, in transgression culturally. I mean, it totally... Now that I understand, like, yippies and everything, Abby Hoffman, like, I, I feel like a, an idiot, but that was what it was. Like, it's Pegasus the Immortal, <laughs> like, running a pig for a 68 presidential candidate is like the equivalent of Trumpism today, in my opinion. It's not, it's not serious. Well, sure, it's not serious, <laughs> right? But it's also rebelling against the left morality. I mean, what you're talking about, John Stewart crying on television, this kind of like moralist liberal bent, which it's rejecting as well. I was starting to read about these, these people online that are denouncing intersectionality. Part of the exchange was with James Hartfield on calling intersectionality sectarian. The argument, I think, has to do with that they're, they're going after those people that are racist, sexists. They're out to get people, out to tell them that they've like done something wrong, right? And it doesn't really add up to like a coherent politics. It's sort of authoritarian. And that's why that Vice clip, by the way, of what happened in Evergreen College with the girl, the anarchist girl, or I don't know if she considers herself an anarchist, but she certainly looked the part. <laughs> she said, yeah. you know, at one point about this white professor who is, you know, this like crunchy lefty guy, but he's like, I'm with the people. Like I'm, you know, I support like your right to speak your mind, but like I want to understand what you're saying. And his politics weren't the best, but he was kind of just making like a simple point, like I want to understand like what you're doing here. And they were just calling him racist, a white supremacist. And at one point in the interview, she says, "Well, you know, I hope one day we'll be able to weed people like him out." Yeah, that's this is in the Vice. And yeah, know. it's in the Vice. Documentary, and, or the the news clip, and it was so. Bizarre, and so the left morality stuff is left question mark, right? And and it, like the rebellion against it isn't just um, it's not politically conscious, right? It's just, but it's a kind of exhaustion with a certain kind of idea, stupidity with policing behavior that has become the norm, and right, and that's the truth of it. It's not that these people are somehow more enlightened because they're acting out these charades, but that it expresses something real about the state of where we are, right? I think <laughs> Paul DeMarty wanted it to be a class analysis, and it's it's not, but that's not what it is. I think I, yeah, I think she was just trying to actually understand them, and there's nothing wrong with that, and I guess, yeah, that eschews certain forms of analysis no but, but there's something yeah. about the impulse yeah. to want to make it a class analysis because somehow like that would allow it to be useful for the left but what it misses is what the book is raising that this is not a class problem 
necessarily and that like perhaps what we have to deal with like the symptom that we're dealing with in the present right cannot be expressed and understood in class term and this poses a challenge to the left this poses a challenge to marxists mm-hmm. right but nonetheless what she's done mm-hmm. meaning you, I, don't, I wouldn't call it objective but she's trying to have a sympathetic eye get in there it's mm-hmm. it's kind of like old not old school but it is 60s journalism type of sort of like embodying. there's a sociological fascination and she's able to provide a service because she's trying to understand how is it that this world makes sense to these people yes i mean i think it's helpful also to look at her book as looking at the sort of intersectional tumblr liberalism although i hate to use the word liberalism and talking about them and uh the 4chan sort of betard culture as both sort of emanating from the same like sort of fellow traveler of the new left i guess like the yippie hippie kind of thing just like the sort of cultural transgressive elements like it's both they're both spawned from that and that's interesting and we should take note of that like 4chan doesn't come from pat buchanan <laughs> it doesn't milo doesn't come from pat buchanan it is a form of discontent that like matters to think about yes and and the issue is perhaps why there has been such a huge reaction to her book from the left Mm-hmm. Right, they've reacted right. against yeah. her quite aggressively, and honestly, until to this point, I don't get it. I don't get why there's such a negative response to this work, right? when it actually is clearly important. Or if not, if they're not holding political power in any way, right? If they did not switch, move the election, did not necessarily vote in Trump, they definitely became a pheno- phenomenon of the Trump election of the kind of discontent that we can have acutely. Like sort of allows us to acutely understand the discontent of the present, whether or not it is like truly a political organization that can sort of change the course of the election. Well, it's a diagnosis of the present that the left needs, and yeah. so if this can actually help, why, you know, why it's not a, it's not propaganda from the communists. That wrapped up our first part of the podcast on Paul DeMarty's review of Angela Nagel's book *Kill All Normies*. So a bit of a musical interlude before we get to the second part of the podcast. We leave you here with The Misfits' Last Caress. podcast. So we're going to talk 15 minutes about the recent anti-fascism panel at Berkeley that happened a week or two ago. So rather recently. At Berkeley City College. Yeah. We actually had, uh, we told the RCP about it and they were like, oh, it's at the City College, not at Cal, which is, you know, uh, University of California at Berkeley. And I, I don't know if that was the main reason why they didn't show up, but it was kind of interesting that they were turned off by that 
Um, and then someone else was actually turned on by it. And they said, oh, you're trying to trying to go to the working class. You're at City College. And we're like, no, no, that's just where we have to be. Uh, it's not really that intentional. But yeah, people read it their own ways. But no, yeah, we're at City College. That's an intersection of an audience that we don't necessarily have available on a regular basis on the campuses. So it's interesting. So there are four speakers. I'm just going to quickly run through it. So there was Eugene, CPUSA DSA member. Luma Nicole from Freedom Socialist yeah. Party yeah, and the Communities Against Racism and Fascism. Victoria Fierce, who is a DSA member and is an organization called East Bay for Everyone. Is that the housing organization? Yes, um, organization. and she leads it, mm-hmm. yeah. And she leads it. And Ramsey Kanan from PM Press. He was like uh, one of the founding yeah. members of, of AK Press. He started AK Press from his bedroom in Scotland. But now he's in PM Press. He's the embodiment of PM Press here. So yeah, I don't know anyone else associated with it, honestly. So I listened to the recording, but maybe you can tell us a bit about the why these people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just a brief bit of background, just so people have an understanding of the timeline of like events in, in Berkeley. There was obviously the inauguration in late January uh, in D.C., obviously. And then in I think it was like early to mid-February was the first problem in Berkeley where Milo announced as part of his book tour that he was coming. He wasn't able to speak because Antifa groups had assembled through like it's going down.org and other sites. And they were, I don't know, at least a couple thousand strong. They were very uh, populous and they lit dumpsters on fire and sort of just caused a complete riot. There were about 100 police that were trapped inside a building and couldn't do anything. And that was considered, that's what everyone in Berkeley has been responding to since then, which is trying to make that not happen ever again. And so at any point in time when like Ben Shapiro or Ann Coulter or any of these people say that they're coming to Berkeley, it's been a transparent trolling of the community to say... Let's the daring Antifa to go back out and riot some more and start some more fires and, and punch more DSA members in the face or whoever they find, uh, which they did. I remember a friend of mine who's a member of DSA lost uh, several teeth um, just because he was trying to stop them from lighting the dumpster on fire um, and they punched him. And so they're just sort of like this. The mayor of Berkeley called them a, a street gang and. There are a lot of people who are sort of conflicted and want to support them because they don't like Trump and they think that, hey, maybe this is the response to that or the proper response to it. A lot of people are confused. So the RCP hosted an event in April where Sansara Taylor spoke. Uh, she was the only one that spoke and she took Q&A and people in the community overwhelmingly who are representing like Berkeley as locals were incredibly hostile to them and accused her of not living here and basically accused her of being funded by George Soros. And it was just a, it was a mess. And so basically the university has tried to prevent what happened in February and April when they sort of sparred in the streets uh, with like the Proud Boys and other groups from like Orange County um, from ever happening again. And so it's completely like bankrupting them. Like they spent, I mean, close to a couple million I mean, I think the critical theory program at Cal was like recently just like completely slashed down to almost nothing. And so it's like there's a lot of like changes in the budget that are happening that people aren't comfortable with for obvious reasons. So it's been just about sort of preventing riots this whole year. And it's starting to kind of ebb. But Antifa, I mean, Gene, very clearly, he's the CPUSA guy. He runs the Nebel Proctor Library. He very clearly said that the the left, you know, sort of lost the PR battle, the public relations battle, um, because of Antifa. 
But then um, he also yeah. says, though, within the same presentation, he kept repeating that the correct position is still to, like, defend these people against being persecuted by the state. For? He kept, like, these two things. Right. Okay. Right? He's like, we lost the PR battle. This looks bad. But we can't denounce this because it's being put under the target of the state and so we have to be like principled leftists and support them against the state and what was the response to that i think that um well there's a lot of opportunism in his talk too though because he was one of the people that actually said this is not fascism but then sort of gave in to the idea that that's what the kids are calling it i mean literally no one said this but that was the implied attitude that was the attitude right. of most of them except for Ramsey Kanan who I thought was a bit sobering in response to a kind of amped up opportunism about where the millennial left is at so they knew that it was incoherent but thought that the way they would support it was just by supporting it right there's a sense in which people who are saying that this is fascism and who are spreading around this very popular, well-made posters at pretty much every business in Berkeley, Oakland, and Albany, which is just north of Berkeley that says like Albany or Berkeley or Oakland united against hate. They're everywhere. And so there's this sense in which, of course, this is the right position to take. And the community is probably at least sympathetic to that idea that Trump represents hate or fascism or whatever. But the kids have sort of gone too far. Some of the kids have gone too far. And, you know, we admit that. But we're still right. Of course, of course, this is fascism. That was kind of that idea. So the point is a disagreement on the grounds of tactics, but not on the quote unquote politics. Exactly. Yeah. Insofar as what they're saying is, well, we know we have the analysis. You can look at Trotsky. This is what fascism was. Look at the writings of the 1930s. Like literally, this is what Luma Nicole from the Freedom Socialist right. Party was like. We have the analysis. It's available. We have the analysis. Go read it. We have the analysis. And then she says Trump is not fascism. But then she gives in, I think, because it's what's going, right? It's what's alive. So there's a kind of tailism at work. And I think, I don't know if, I think what these people think that they're doing is supporting the new rebellious spirit, but they're doing so without clarification and maybe even an interest in being too, like interjecting too much. Um, I don't know, I guess I don't know because it did seem like they both, at least the first two panelists, had an understanding that when you talk about Donald Trump, we're not talking about a fascist America. They were very clear about that. And yet, it, it seemed in the room, there was this kind of agreement that that's just the way that the resistance appears and that one supports the resistance, right? Right, there's this idea, yeah. I think there's this idea that like if if there's any kind of a protest movement that it's it's some kind of an emotional um pre-rational kind of reaction to something and so it's eminently like valid. Um and so they I think were sort of what came off as equivocating was I probably in their mind just sort of clarifying um what's been said sort of in the streets for agitational purposes. 
and trying to have like a richer, you know, more nuanced sort of understanding of that. But there wasn't a night, wasn't a sense that they were prepared to contradict in any way the notion that this is indeed fascism. They're, the equivocating came from just like pointing out that, well, there are degrees of gradation, that this is just a kind of it that's just really early. And it, and it maybe it doesn't look clearly like it is yet, but it'll be there and no revolution will happen unless we get rid of it first. You know, there's that. So that's right. No, that's right. And that was the response yeah. by um, Luma of uh, to Watson's question, right? Like there was this push to say, well, isn't the struggling for a revolution the only way in which one does away with the threat of fascism question? And she goes, well, look, if you don't fight the fascists, your revolution's not coming. And I was like, but you didn't actually answer the question. You just like inverted the premise and then, you, you know, and you sort of wagged your finger and say, look, we all have to be together on this. But Ramsey, Kanan, there was a lot of like sobering that I appreciated only insofar as it was the, he was the only one that understood that there were differences between them also and actually said it out loud. And Gene, in the response to Ramsey, the first thing that he says is, I think that, you know, there's just mostly agreement here. And it's just kind of a mind-boggling thing. And this is what I mean by sort of incoherent opportunism, right? Because they weren't saying the same things. I mean, does Gene just not know that? No. I think that Gene has this way of saying, well, look, we're all on the same side, buddy. You know, and that's his politics. We also have to think about why is it that these more veteran leftists are seeing an opportunity in the present moment as well through these people. Like, why would they make that stretch? Why the opportunism? Like, what is the potential that they might be seeing or the potential that we could consider in the present moment of an expression of discontent that, yes, is being perhaps is kind of, like, projected in, in the, into the wrong, like, object, but that nonetheless represents, like, people actually being interested in politically reacting to the present status quo whatever that set of school or whatever that understanding of the set of school is. So I'm just trying to get to like, where can we extract the potentiality that these people see in the present moment that they would be able to sort of still say, but we got to support these people from state repression because they're doing something. It's, it's like a- It's the resistance. It's a notion that you follow that which resist. I mean, there, there is though, right, this other culture of resistance, which Nagel is describing, which is like rejecting a certain kind of leftist rebellion as well. There's the question of what potential they see. And then there's the question of what potential there is and yes. whether there is. The, the, the idea that, you know, you go punch like the Nazis or something as a form of Politics. I mean, at least, at least the anarchist on the panel, Ramsey Kanan, was very coherent here. He was like, this is just a tactic through which you can fight against the right wing that's going to rebel against your revolution. That is the goal, though, revolution. So if that's not going on, then what is this? And yeah, so if that's not going on, what is this? Right? What is this today? That's a good question. Well, there's, yeah, there's definitely like an implicit popular frontism. Like we had a member of Cal anti-fascism turn us down uh, because she thought that the panel would divide the groups against themselves and was bad for like solidarity on the left. Like that was explicitly what she said. 
Um, and I should note that she also was upset. Um, I, she was featured in a photo in the New York Times in a T-shirt that said Cal anti-fascism. And she sort, sort of like turned to the left. And so I just thought it said Cal Antifa. And I was not aware that Antifa versus anti-fascism um, is an incredibly important difference and you can't mix them up. And I, I sort of was naively under the assumption that one was just like a, a truncated form of the other, that it's sort of, yeah, whatever. So yeah, she she went into sort of like a, an hysterical fit because I accidentally said Antifa. Um, so there's this idea that like, people who want to be seen as the sort of civilized anti-Trump, anti-fascism activists do not in any way want to be associated with like the street gang-ified idea of Antifa, even though they don't call them street gangs, they say the media portrays them as that. So there's this, it's real confusing. They don't see the black bloc as necessarily a street gang, or they don't admit to that. They think that's a media distortion. But then they, they tacitly admit to that by wanting to distance themselves from it. So it's just very confusing. But all that's sort of going on. So there's this idea of like the panel itself, just just having a conversation would like impede the solidarity on the left that I found. I found that that was probably like the most depressing part of this process. I have Um, to say, it's not the first time that that happens in a platypus panel. And in fact, of course, our panels are structured. And at least there's a consciousness that platypus panels are structured to bring out differences as a productive place in which differences can be laid out and as a form of clarification of the left. But it's very interesting, and I think this is a very good segue to um, the current issue of the Platypus Review, issue 100. Because I also was like, what we're experiencing, and this is the crime think piece, not your grandfather's anti-fascism, challenges facing the anti-fascist movement. And there is one specific section in that article which just takes up the idea of the Antifa identity. And it really does take issue with it. Right? And so because it's become a pejorative for lifestyle culture. And what Crime Thing wanted to make sure is to separate the difference between the anti-fire subculture of that you just look a certain way, you do a certain party thing, to an anti-fascist politics. And even the idea of just cutting the word, losing anti-fascism is really important to Crime Think, at least in this article, because it is like losing a sense of what the real enemy is. And now it's very interesting that what we are experiencing with this resurgent moment is sort of, yes, some sort of splits and divisions within inside and like wanting to clarify what is it that we're trying to do. And this wide mass of quote unquote Antifa is really has divisions within it that are coming out through this experience. Right? And, and crime thing becomes at least trying to put a wedge into it saying, well, we don't want to just identify as Antifa because that is insular. We don't want to have that insularity. We don't want to be a subculture. Uh-huh. And that's a very important critique that crime thing basically poses in, the, in this piece. And I found it quite like illuminating, mm-hmm. really. I wonder, Audrey, if there's like a sense of that as well, because Berkeley is very important for the crime thing people as a moment. It's like the high watermark is the immediate post-Charlottesville confrontations. And they also do the other thing that happened in Europe, Hannah, which is emphasized very early on in the article, the problem of the media, of winning the media battle. And sort of the, the two weeks of grace that happened after Charlottesville, where like the anti-Trumpism of the Washington Post sort of was basically presented as like, we have to support the Antifa or the anti-fascists. But that, that sort of lasted very, very briefly, that that window was there. And there's a question, okay, so why was it when that window there that the media picked up on? 
That's a good question. Yeah. Um, and I, I think Ramsey is helpful in looking at this because he definitely was able to talk about his experiences with anti-fascism in the 80s and probably from his view, like the, the real deal, as opposed to the sort of, uh, like, I guess, replica. And I mean, he was coming from maybe a place of like, almost like pride at having been involved in the real thing. But I think I think he was totally, I think what he was saying was totally legitimate, which is just that what a lot of people are skeptical about this question about this sort of assumption that these are Nazis, right? I mean, Charlottesville is one thing, you know, you're in the actual South, you know, and that's one thing when you have um, guys who are all white men or something and they're wearing khakis or whatever. Um, But here in Berkeley, I mean, I've been to all these events. They're like, (laughs) they're not all white Uh, they're actually very diverse they're from 4chan they're incels they're they hold kekistan flags like they're just online too much like they're not uh it's just there needs to be a discussion about whether you can actually call these people nazis before you just go ahead and start punching people and i think that i think that that not being addressed has led to the split between like Antifa and anti-fascism where the people who sort of want to be the seen as like the civilized sort of academic response to sort of Trump and the threat of fascism or whatever um, want to be distanced from the kids who are like these these ripped kids riding fixed gears who can afford Doc Martens just like punching pale incels you know like it's not (laughs) can I read this bit here because we're talking about it a great deal and I just wanted to read the bit from the article the crime thing article the crime thing article identity is uh fundamentally about distinguishing oneself from others anti-fascism however is for everybody we should be careful not to insulate it within a particular demographic with a specific dress code and lingo limiting our outreach to those familiar with the same rhetoric or reference points as ourselves. So yeah, the critique is about not appealing to the masses of people that you're supposed to politicize, right? And to becoming like a subculture. It's a bit of a salve though to the the reality that I mean the the 4chan people, the Tumblr liberalism people just tying this all together. I mean, these are all aspects of subculturalism run amok. Um, it, it invades everything, including comedy, where it's just all about sort of obscure references rather than, you know, whatever they were originally organized for. It's all about feeling like you're a part of a community. And the only way that they're able to feel like that is through exclusivity. So, I mean, I think that it's nice to say that now uh, when you want it to be more inclusive. But like, I mean, just think of like the Tumblr, Tumblr liberalism didn't translate in the election for a reason. When you are, have a bunch of people shamed for not knowing the list of 72 pronouns, they're not going to be on your side. I mean, it's only going to be a handful of people that know that stuff. And that doesn't translate to politics. It's anti-politics. It's a way to exclude people. And so all these groups that have sort of used exclusion for their own purposes for so long are now kind of regretting it for good reason. But it just it comes off as a little too late. So I don't know what's going to happen here. I think you're you're right. But the exclusionary narrative that you're talking about, it reminded me of the critique, I guess, by some of the people like Hartfield and others of the intersectionality stuff in terms of the claims to authenticity. So, you know, like implicitly in an argument where you're saying you're excluded because you're not actually a woman 
therefore you cannot be a feminist this this argument right the claim is to a kind of authentic self that can then speak and that you're policing that space right and so it, it is deeply kind of authoritarian um and yeah so it's exclusionary and authoritarian and you know hartfield goes so far as calling it like anti-humanist because it has this kind of like anti-universality quality about it i mean again you know just to drive the point home the rebellion against is not politically conscious and it's deeply pathological but it reveals something true about a kind of distorted leftism whatever one wants to call it i don't we're seeing the consequences of of that um so i guess kind of brand of subculturalism the way that it's expressed itself with like millennials specifically it seems to pervade everything on using like i guess like the the traditional spectrum of left and right it's everywhere it's not like it's confined to any one group everyone's guilty of it and now we've seen the political consequences and now what we're scared what do you scared. mean by that now we've seen the political consequences well, I think that's what Nagel was trying to get at is like, how does how does how do these phenomena tie into what happened in this election? Why were there so many people who who sort of rejected, like you say, in maybe a pre-political sort of more of psychological sense, but like rejected Hillary's particular iteration of identity politics? And I think it's because it's it was totally tied to Tumblr liberalism, especially with like, you know, figures like Lena Dunham and these people coming in. And without realizing, I guess, that uh, the, what that association would do, it totally sullied the campaign. I mean, there, there are a large amount of people in the center who, who are not on 4chan and are not at all sympathetic to, you know, that, that sort of culture, um, but felt pushed away or pushed out of the movement without realizing it. So, no, but now this yeah. rationale is starting to get me a little bit, like, I'm becoming a little bit doubtful about mm-hmm. it because sort of like to yeah. the degree that like, okay, this is kind of like everywhere and the discontent with the Democrats is everywhere, but I don't think it actually fully explains why the Democrats lost, why Hillary lost. And it just like, right. my, no. my, my, my sense of it is like still, that when it's embedded on there, we're still trying to understand why Hillary Clinton lost. I have a little bit of a problem with it, but that's basically like, if that's what's motivated, fine. But I don't think it actually answers the question of why Hillary lost sort of sufficiently. And, you know, I just think about like, well, the sense of like Pennsylvania and Michigan, mine workers and auto workers voting against the ranks of their unions, not Democratic. Hillary Clinton didn't even show up in Michigan for the election campaign, right? She just thought she had it and Trump took it. But so it's sort of like these were two very important swing states. Like and the numbers and I just want to sort of say like the auto workers in Michigan and the mine workers in Pennsylvania are perhaps a larger voting branch that had swung like well, not um, perhaps I mean, no yeah they are a larger voting branch and that swung two very large states in the whole thing so it does I don't want to diminish the significance of what this work of Angel of Nagel is doing but I also sort of feel like this is an insufficient answer to the problem why Hillary Clinton lost. This is not the answer to why Hillary Clinton lost. This book is not the answer no, to why no, Hillary no. Clinton lost. I think that right. it's, um, I was just pointing to the DeMarty review because he puts it this way. He's like, okay, so Trump won last year on the thinnest of margins and that kind of success certainly has many fathers. Alt-right enthusiasm for Trump, the bet noir of the conservative mainstream is one explanation. Mm-hmm. The lukewarm attitude of Democrat constituencies for Hillary 
is another. Mm -hmm. The left behind of the Rust Belt are one more. On it goes. No, I totally agree. I, I like if anything, I'm, I'm, I'm. I shouldn't. I should have been more clear about the fact that like I'm speaking for a certain group of people that I probably can't even necessarily speak for. And so it's all very problematic um, and abstract. But I mean, just like <laughs> my milieu of like comedians uh, who supported Bernie and a lot of them ended up going for Trump and a lot of them were not, you know, white men. Um, that's interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think for the people who uh, are sort of like in my my socioeconomic status or sort of like cultural milieu that I think that sheds light. The discontent with like Tumblr, like activism sheds light, but it's definitely not true for everyone. But I mean, a lot of Bernie supporters who went to Trump, like kind of put him over the top, you know, and so that's still an interesting aspect of it. But it's by no means like a complete explanation. Here's a question. How did they understand the going from Bernie to Trump? How did they argue for it, justify it? What was your sense of that? I could go on and on and on about that, uh, but how do I mean? I mean, I, I'm evidence of that. I never considered Trump at all, and I still am not a, a pro-Trump person. But I'm. But I, there was an aspect of, I, I mean, Chris's article, "Why Not Trump?" You know, I I kind of was one of those people after the Democratic convention where it's just like, hey, this revolution's gonna keep going. I don't care if he's out. You know, we're gonna keep. We're gonna find a way. And then eventually we're just like, Jill, come on, Jill, really, Jill Stein? Like, I couldn't really maintain that. And and he had a he had a, a sentence in Why Not Trump about how Jill Stein voters didn't realize that they're actually you know sort of supporting Trump. And so that kind of clicked for me, and I just realized I should just be honest about. Uh, I guess what I what I'm really going for, uh, and I it took me a while. I mean, it was a whole transition, but I think in my experience, a lot of those people it either came from like a transgressive kind of a comical, just like who cares? He's not going to win anyway. But like they were dishonest about the fact that they actually wanted him to win, um, or a kind of um, like you just had to give them a permission. You just had to give them permission. That's it. You, it was very simple. You just kind of had to reveal this like top layer of um, uh, seeing seeing Trump is off limits completely. It was a very easy uh, fix. Like you just kind of give them permission for it, and they they did it. It was not hard. And so that's what I mean. Seeing seeing Sanders and Trump as like a dual phenomenon is really clarifying here, um, because in some ways Sanders was just like sort of the the less honest Trump. So. Yeah, I think a lot of people experienced uh, the kind of transgression in political terms. Um, and I mean, it should be it clearly should go without saying that most comics have no idea what they're talking about when they talk about politics. They really don't. Yeah. But they're it's sort a of kind forced of to a political adolescent rebellion. But the service of the book, just going back to this, right? Like, because you kind of made one argument earlier which I thought was good to keep in mind which is that the book is is providing a service it's posing the question a challenge to the left is whether or not like this form of knowledge can be useful towards like building a revolutionary movement like what kind of form of knowledge is this it is the sociology it's a slice of like a generation immature adolescent rebellion right that doesn't have a home and it's manifesting in this like pathological way and she's raising it as a problem so yeah, and in that way, it's very real. Um, <laughs> the conversation about the conversation yeah. about um, Trump and Sanders, though, it will be for another day.
because that's that's a long conversation. And certainly I don't necessarily agree that there is just a kind of dishonest Trump and Sanders. I don't know if I agree with that statement. I, I think that, you know, the needs that, right, everybody kept saying, oh, if Sanders would have gone against Trump, like he would have probably won, like this kind of formulation, right? And so there's the real need that's present that then creates the possibility for someone like Trump to win. There's the real need, we are at 15 minutes, where there's the real need that obviously is posed by the people that voted for Trump in the states that Lori was talking about, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, and like, what does it mean in Ohio? Like, what does it mean that these people voted for Trump and could have they voted for Sanders, right? And like, why or why not? Certainly he's not a fascist. Yeah. Certainly he's not a fascist. Um, and so we should well, we should be sober and like be able to face the problems of the present, right? With like boldness and determination, but not self-delusion. Scaring the kids into thinking that fascism is around the corner is not one way of fighting for the revolution. No, certainly it's kind of, it just feels like a last gasp desperate attempt or something to hold up whatever the millennial left for the discontent of the Bernie supporters had, um, but then to react to to the Trump phenomenon. No, I'm just thinking about the other piece and issue 100 on the yeah. death of the millennial left, which has to be noted that it really is a bookend to the first decade of Platypus. What was the left in our time? What was the movements that the left took, not only in the US, but the UK and, and elsewhere, Egypt, etc. how the left reacted to that? the moment of Occupy, the moment of the new SDS. And I cannot, through our discussions, see the Nagel book as already opening this door to understanding the kind of transition that we're under. Um, when the millennial left, the sort of the discontent, at least that Occupy represented, was became so short-lived. Yet, however, there was no answer to the problem, right? Bernie posed it in one way, Trump posed it in another, but they were both, what I would still maintain is that they were both definitely reacting to something. The Bernie approach was the reviving of the New Deal imagination going back to the new left, if not even the 1930s in, in America. Uh, and Trump was largely recognizable. And I think that that is why it becomes, but it is the enemy. So let's call the enemy by a name we understand, fascism. Yeah, instead of like a New York type Democrat politician that didn't fit within like the Republican Party mold, right? I mean, there, there, there's this self-delusion about Trump that stops people from thinking about him politically, yeah. right? And so it, when it becomes just a general paranoia, and then we're not, we're not speaking politically. We have to wrap up our conversation now. Could I, could I like finish with, I guess, like one sentence on that? Um, I, I mean, I'm, oh, okay. I mean, I might have like not said that right about Bernie being like, the dishonest version of Trump or something, but I mean, he uh, Trump was able to marshal discontents with uh, Wall Street and like he's anti-war, anti-Wall Street, and anti-PC identity politics. And I mean, Bernie just couldn't oppose PC identity politics, and so that made him feel sort of less genuine in some ways, I guess, in terms of like a transgressive politics. He was also weak in taking sort of a stance in relation to it, which is why Black Lives Matter could react so aggressively to him. Exactly. And why we're seeing like groups that are sort of apologizing for supporting Bernie who are on like an apology tour right now, like a lot of sort of like Bernie crack groups. Yeah, you're right. I, I think what you're saying is true that there was 
limitation to being a Democratic Party candidate. Like, you can't, like, you know, this is the bread and butter ideology of the Democratic Party, right? And you, you can't really critique it as a member of the party. So it is an opportunity. It does pose a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that wrapped up our conversation in the first ever broadcast of Shit That Platypus Says. We'll be back in two weeks, and we hope to have other members of the Platypus Affiliated Society on the air with us. If you have any recommendations on what we should comment on, please shoot us an email at shitthatplatypussays at gmail.com. See you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Let's go!